It is the new year, 2022, and we're in the second week of our sermon series, Catch 22. Now, what is a Catch 22? A Catch 22 is a dilemma where all solutions seem to lead right back to the problem. So we talked last week a little bit about the Joseph Heller novel that kind of spawned this word. Um, And a a simple example of what a Catch-22 could be is something like this. Let's say you are a recent college grad looking for a new job. You keep applying to jobs, but you keep getting rejected. And it's the same answer every time. We need someone with more experience. Problem is, how can you get experience if you can't get a job, right? It's a catch-22, and that's a common one that people come along uh, many times. Now, in this sermon series, we're looking at these kind of dilemmas, these no-win situations in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the story that Sharif had just read for us, I, I don't see the dilemma necessarily as a decision that Jesus needs to make. I, I see the dilemma in the passage as the nature of faith itself, the nature of faith itself. Now, what do I mean by this word faith? Um, does anybody here have a, a good definition that you can shout out in the room of, de- of faith? Now, think about that for a second. If you're at home and you're joining us online, feel free to type that maybe into the YouTube comments or the Facebook comments, wherever you are. Um, type that in and let us know your definition of faith. But anybody in the room, do you have a good definition of faith? Thoughts, feelings, complaints. Oh, Sharifa, you do read the Bible, publicly even. Yes, so she shared this, which I have written here, faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. That is from the book of Hebrews. If you want a dictionary definition of faith, it goes something like this, a strong belief or a trust in someone or something. Now, when I hear both of those definitions, I hear something that's implied in the dictionary definition, and and it's actually uh, right out there in the open in what Sharifa said and what we read from Hebrews. Faith is believing or trusting in something that we don't see. We don't see. Have you ever struggled with faith? Have you ever struggled with faith? I will say this. I haven't struggled with faith because that would put it in the past tense. I struggle with faith. All the time, I struggle with faith. I struggle with, yes, believing in something that I can't see or putting trust in something I can't see, but I also struggle with how this whole faith deal works. Now, I had Sharifa read this rather long passage from the book of Mark, chapter 5. It actually, I don't know if you noticed, it includes two stories, not just one, but two stories of healing. Now, scholars of the Gospel of Mark point out that this is a literary device that Mark uses several times, where basically he's telling one story, and then while he's telling that story, he introduces all new characters and tells a whole other story in the middle of that, and then goes back and finishes the first story. Scholars call this a Markin sandwich, a Markin sandwich. So this sandwich is full of stories about faith, about faith. Let me really quickly summarize this story and give a little bit of context. 
When the passage starts, Jesus is approached by a man named Jairus. Now, we're told he is a synagogue leader. This doesn't mean he's a priest. It's different than that. He's a synagogue leader. That is a high position in the community, usually held by a very wealthy man who oversaw and maybe even funded the activities at the synagogue. He's basically like the head of the church board, the most influential guy in the church. And since the temple is the center of Jewish life, we've got to understand that he is the most influential man anywhere. That's who Jairus is. Now, here's a crazy thing. Up until this point in the book of Mark and in many of the Gospels, we see that the religious leaders, anybody who is associated with the temple or the synagogue, they, they do not like Jesus very much. They don't want him around. He, he, he causes trouble for them. They condemn his teachings. They're constantly trying to catch him up in controversy and get him in trouble. And yet we see here, as well as in other passages, where a religious leader, the same ones that try to, uh, try to catch Jesus up and mess him up and, and they want bad things for him, when they're faced with personal crisis, they seek Jesus out. When they're in crisis, they seek Jesus out. Jairus is definitely in crisis. His 12-year-old daughter is deathly ill. So, so he begs Jesus to come to his home and to lay hands to heal, on, to heal her. Now, William Barclay, who for years was the New Testament professor at Glasgow University, he says that this crisis has put Jairus in a position where he has to abandon three things that would have been very important to him. Barclay says that he had to abandon his prejudice, his dignity, and his pride to approach Jesus. His prejudice, his dignity, and his pride. In his desperation, he's willing to give it all up if it means that Jesus can help heal his daughter. And Jesus goes with Jairus, but it's on his way to Jairus' house that that in-between story happens. The insides of the Mark and Sandwich the woman with the issue of blood. So, so this woman who approaches Jesus, she has some issue with her reproductive system that has caused bleeding for 12 years. This would have meant, according to the Jewish law, that she was considered ceremonially unclean, perpetually. She was unable to worship. She would have been considered an outcast. Not only that, we're told that she spent her money on doctors who did no good for her. It says that she spent, uh, she spent much money and time with doctors and didn't feel any better. Anybody spent a lot of time with doctors and didn't end up feeling that much better? So, this is where she's at. She spent all of her money. She's poor. She is considered ritually unclean. And, and she was, in a word, desperate. And in her desperation, she reaches out to Jesus. Now, I want to point out a couple of things that interest me about her story in particular. First, Jesus stops and makes a rich man wait so that he can help a poor, ritually unclean woman. Isn't that fascinating? This is something we see over and over in, again in Jesus' ministry. See, Jesus' grace is for everybody. His grace is for all, but his heart is after the outcast. His heart is after the weak. His heart is after the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the helpless. See, Jesus will make the powerful wait so that he can minister to the powerless. The second thing I notice is this. 
her theology's all messed up. It's totally out of whack. She, see, she has this magical idea of who Jesus is, that, oh, I, I just need to touch his clothes because that's where the power resides. She's got a magical, superstitious understanding of Jesus. And if you remember last week when we talked about the lepers, remember Jesus healed these 10 lepers? How did he heal them? Well, he didn't go over to them and wave his hands and say an incantation or some Harry Potter spell, right? No, no, no. He, he just said, you're well. And, and he told them to go to the priest and show themselves to the priest because it's already happened. See, when Jesus heals, it, it, it's often in an instant, no flash, no fanfare. Now, I believe the fact that it does work tells us less about her beliefs being right and more about how Jesus reaches out to us. No matter how messed up or how wrong our views are, he doesn't wait for us to get our theology right to make us well. Jesus tells her the same thing that he told the lepers last week, actually. This is, this is kind of interesting. Remember, he told that leper who came back and, and said, um, thank you. The only one out of ten came back and said, thank you. And he said, your faith has saved you, or your faith has made you well, as some translations say. So that makes me think again, well, what is this faith? Uh, I think that if this story teaches us anything, it's that faith is this. It's simply a hand reached out to God. That faith is a hand reached out to God. Let me say that again. It's a hand reached out towards God because sometimes we try to think of faith as, as something that's like a substance that we can measure. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, I wish I had faith like that? I wish I had enough faith that that could happen. That if only you could muster up enough faith that God would have to answer your prayers. But faith is not a substance in that way. See, faith can't be measured like that. It's a hand reached out towards God. I want to illustrate it in this way. I want you to picture in your mind three men who are out hiking in the woods. It's a snowy day, even snowier than yesterday. And they're out in the woods, and they're in the middle of nowhere, and they encounter a grizzly bear, okay? They're all scared for their lives. They start running, and they run away from the bear, and then they find themselves on the edge of a cliff. Now, it's a, not a really tall cliff. It's about 20 feet drop, but onto a frozen lake. What would you do? I mean, maybe if you jump onto the lake, then it's frozen enough that it'll hold you. Maybe not. Well, man number one thinks this. Well, the ice is probably going to break, and I'll probably die, but here goes nothing. He jumps and the ice holds, and he's safe. Man number two thinks it's a 50-50 shot. Maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. He jumps, and the ice holds, and he's safe. Man number three thinks, I'm sure that the ice will hold. It's been cold for months now. It's probably a foot thick. I will jump, and I'll be fine. He jumps, and sure enough, the ice holds, and he is fine. Now, they all jumped, right? They all were safe at the end of the day. I want to ask you this. Which one of them had the most faith in the ice? The last one did. 
Now, which one of them, or I should put it this way, whose faith saved them the most? No, all of them. They all had enough faith to save them because here's how much faith it takes, enough to jump. You just need enough faith to jump. You just need enough faith in Jesus to reach out your hand. That's all you need is the faith to reach out your hand. It's not something you measure. It's not something you quantify. It's a hand reached out to God. That's what our faith is. I like what Timothy Keller says about faith. He says this, it's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. I want to read that again. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Ashley. She's, 60, she's a 63-year-old mother and grandmother. Now, when Ashley was in her 30s, she was married, had two kids, a son and a daughter. At this point in her life, Ashley uh, became increasingly dependent on drugs and alcohol to the point where there were consequences to that. Um, her marriage broke up, and she was not able to be the mother to her children that they needed. And so at one point, her children were taken away from her. She struggled for actually about two decades with this addiction. And in her late 50s, after many, many attempts, she was able to get sober through a 12-step recovery program. Now, as part of this recovery program, um, she was told that she would have to surrender her life to a higher power. Some people used the word God, but, but the program said you just had to be a higher power. You just have to surrender your life to a higher power. But Ashley grew up in church, and she didn't like that God concept one bit. In fact, she had been mistreated and abused by people who claimed to know God, so she wanted nothing to do with it. So she told her sponsor, that was the person who was helping her through the 12 steps of recovery, she said, okay, I, I, can't, I just can't believe in God. Her sponsor said, well, if you can't believe in God, could you believe in good orderly direction, G-O-D? And she said, okay, I could believe in that. I can have that as my stand-in to get sober. And so she did. Well, it worked. She got sober, and her life started getting better. And after a couple of years sober, her life was back to some degree of normal. She had reconnected with her son, who was now a grown man, and with her daughter, who had kids of her own. After a few more years, she was, she was working a, a solid job, and she met another man in the recovery program, and they got married. But as it always does, life happened. And after being married only two years to her new husband, her husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he died within six months. She was devastated, and, and, and she spoke to her sponsor, who was still her sponsor in the program, and her sponsor said, Ashley, you've got to let go and let God. This annoyed her to no end. I mean, that sounded like a trite, empty, hollow thing to say to somebody who was struggling like she was. Let go and let God. Then just a few months later, after her husband had died, her ex-husband called her with a phone call that dealt a blow that was just devastating. Her son, now a grown man, had just passed away from a drug overdose. And she did not know what to do. 
So she called her sponsor, and her sponsor said, Ashley, let go and let God. Oh, my gosh, that made her so angry. (laughs) And she said, okay, if God wants it, I'll let God have it. She was so angry, and she went into her bedroom, and she closed the door, and she said the first prayer that she had ever willingly said, and it was not a nice one. And through tears and clenched teeth, she said, God, if you are there, how dare you? How dare you? You are either totally incompetent or totally cruel. Either way, I want nothing to do with you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And now trust me, I have cleaned this up for a church audience. And she collapsed into a wailing puddle of tears and rage, and she pounded her fists into pillows, just wishing that could be God's face. And it went on and on. But then something strange happened. And see, I've heard her tell this story several times, and I'm always amazed at the end of this story. After what was probably the most foul-mouthed, curse-filled, unsanctified prayer ever uttered, she suddenly felt something that she had never felt before. And she, she could only describe it as a presence. And that suddenly she was not alone. And, and that in her mind, in her mind, so it wasn't an audible thing, but she said she just felt like a word was spoken, just one word, no context, no explanation, and that word was child. Child. And Ashley knew that she wasn't alone. And, and Ashley knew that she would never be alone again. That she was a child of God. Now, now that prayer, yes, it was foul-mouthed. And yes, it cursed God, but boy, did it have some faith in it. That prayer was a hand reached out to God. Now, I've got three kids of my own, and when they were little, when they cried out, here's something I never said to one of my children when they cried out, nope, you didn't cry the right way. Nope, you don't have an orthodox understanding of the parent-child relationship. When a child cries out, you answer. God answered my friend Ashley. And that answer was actually quite a bit like the end of this story we were reading today. That Jesus said when when he healed this little girl. And if you remember, boy, do you remember that story we were talking about earlier? After Jesus healed the woman and said, your faith has made you well, he does go to Jairus' house. And he heals his daughter, who everyone said was dead. And Jesus sits at her bedside, and, um, and he says these words. They're Aramaic words, Talitha Kom. Now, the translation that we have doesn't actually go as far as it could in explaining to us how Jesus was addressing this girl. Talitha Kom. Uh, Talitha Kaum is the phrase that a mother would say when waking up a child gently. It literally means, my child, wake up. My child, wake up. 
Faith is just a hand reached out to God. And, you know, faith itself is kind of a catch-22. If you want victory over sin, if you want victory over death, you've got to give up. You've got to surrender. I mean, Jesus himself won the battle for all of us, the battle for all mankind, by surrendering himself. What a crazy way to win, right? 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Would you close your eyes? I, I want to say a prayer, and, and I'm going to invite the band back up to the stage as we're, we're getting ready to close out today. Um, I want to do a, a prayer. And I've done this with, with, with some of you before. Where we're going to do an open-handed prayer where we're basically reaching out our hands to God. And we're saying, God, we come and we release all of the things that we came in here with, and we want you to fill our hands with what you have for us. We want to be at the center of your will. We want you to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You can open your eyes for a minute because I want to actually show you how to do this. Could you just put your hands forward on your lap? And, and you can do this at home as well. Just, just hold out your open hands to God. And you don't have to say the exact words I say, but, but just, just know that you want to release to God those things that are holding you back from going deeper, from being a person who loves the way that God loved, who lives the way that our Savior Jesus lived. So if you would, pray with me. Holy God. We may not have a ton of faith, but what we have is enough for you to do amazing things. So we reach out our open hands to you, God. And we say, Lord, we're giving up everything that is holding us back. Fill our hands with what you have for us today. Fill us up with the same grace and love that Jesus Christ showed. Fill us up with the same kind of love that would give up everything for another. We want to live the way that you live. We want to love the way that you love. Fill us up today, Lord. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.